Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director of Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Hello, everybody. It's Ethan Bellamy. I'm Managing Director for Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. It's December 20th, and welcome to the Petra Nerds Podcast. I'm your co-host with Trisha Curtis. Hi, I'm Trisha Curtis. I'm your co-host as well for the Petra Nerds Podcast. This is our second podcast, and we've had a, some, some errors and some fun getting here, but hopefully this podcast will turn out really well. We were just learning. We were just learning. So this week, let's dive in. We had WTI up 5%, closing 49 and change. Brent, 52 bucks. Natural gas up to 268, but energy equities went the other way. XOP down 5%, OSX down 3%, and the Larian midstream index down 4%. Um, some other interesting stats. Frac crews were actually down 13 week on week. Uh, but the rig count in the U.S. was up 8 to 346. It keeps creeping up on higher oil prices. And then we had big news out of IEA, OPEC. Maybe we should start there, Tricia. IEA, forecast for demand in 21. Yeah, it's still, I mean, it's still pretty sluggish there. So OPEC and IEA basically are echoing each other in near term. And so they came out with their reports, OPEC, on the 14th, IEA on the 15th, they came out with their demand outlook and they revised it down a smidgen. And basically, I mean, they basically just revised everything down a little bit for 2020 and then a little bit going into 2021. And this is so they revised these down. They say, hey, demand's going to be a little softer than expected. And this is all on the back of oil prices are creeping to 49 WTI and Brent's you know, pushing above 50. So the fundamentals in the near term are not matching, I think, those outlooks. And if you break that down further, so if you actually pull back IEA's report and you look at what they're talking about, it's it's it gets back into the global global aviation story and the shutdowns. So they're sort of honed in on these near term shutdowns, and the market the market's either racing ahead. Um, but it, we talked about this in the in the first podcast of how much fundamentals play a role. And at the end of the day, there's only so much froth you can put on the oil market. And really, I think particularly in this market pretty hard to add too much of it. I'd love to get your opinion on that, but I think overwhelmingly the fundamentals are showing us that OPEC has cut production. And we see that in the OPEC figures. Also, super impressively, Libyan production went from 200,000 barrels a day to above a million um, million barrels per day in a matter of two months. And that supply has been absorbed to the market. So if we're at $52 Brent, and we have that supply. I mean, yeah, you could have a little froth and vaccine hopes, but oil has not told us that story this entire year. You know, we've basically been above 40 WTI from June and we're just now creeping to that 49. I mean, to me, it's saying that the underlying fundamentals are, are relatively strong. And I say relatively because, you know, 49, by comparison, this is this is much stronger than we were at. But this is, you know, we're, this is no um, for sure or secure deal. It's just looking a lot better than it was. Yeah, I mean we're ninety five dollars off the bottom this year, so yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that, and I think a lot of people will too. So yeah, Libya, um, they're at one point four million barrels a day. Iraq, or excuse me, Iran said they plan to double production by the end of March. 
Um, on top of that, we had a tanker attack in the Saudi port of Jeddah. Um, it's kind of interesting week in the Middle East. And, and to your point, the fact that we're we're holding up well in the in the face of the supply, um, I think it's it's telling one part of the story. So, you know, on the one hand, this week we had the first healthcare uh, workers in the U.S. start getting vaccines, which was interesting to see. And on the other hand, we've apparently got a new, more virulent strain in the UK that's enhancing lockdowns there. So the pandemic is getting more schizophrenic than it already has been. I'm still in the camp that once you start seeing a pool of people get vaccinated, that the demand for jet fuel is going to accelerate probably beyond what IEA and OPEC and everybody else thinks. And you and I have talked about this many times. All these forecasting agencies are always wrong and sometimes horribly wrong. And I don't think that anybody has a perfect crystal ball right now. And I expect everybody to be pretty badly wrong about how the end of 21 is going to be relative to now. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're, you're right. The These forecasts are, I mean, it, you have to be humble in forecasting. That's why I used to always hate to do them um, because I, I just thought they were crap. You know, when people forecasting production, you know, back in the day when shale was surging and everybody was asking me to do a forecast and I'd be like, ugh. I hate it. I, I don't mind doing these near-term, like two-year outlooks on on production. And actually, I've been really, I've been really confident about getting back to fifty before the end of the year, and we're hitting it. But I think a couple things to mention that you just talked. So it's not a more virulent strain in the UK. It's actually a they haven't. It's a correlation versus causation, and they haven't suggested that yet. It's uh, the two are together. They've realized that there's been a rising case count in the past ten days. So it's really, they think they're seeing a, a much more rapid spread in the past 10 days. And because of that, they basically canceled Christmas and changed all the, you know, increased the the shutdown measures and everything right on the back, like days prior to when they just said you could have more households getting together. What does that mean? So they don't think it's, they don't think it's more dead. What does that mean to cancel Christmas? Just like they festivities? And I mean, you, you lived right over there. So they, what, what does it mean? Yeah, well, they, they're they are rule followers. I mean, they put in these rules and they like expect everyone follower here. We're just kind of like, I hope, you know, you know, not, ever, not everybody's getting together. It's not really enforceable over there. They're basically they give guidance and guidelines. And then they also are trying to, you know, if you if you listen to Sky News or BBC, you can listen to the Tories and the, the libs like duke it out on these on these issues and how how whether or not they should have policemen like knocking on people's doors at Christmas and you know, counting how many family members are together or different households. So right up until like, I think it was a day or two ago, Boris Johnson had, had basically come out and said, you can get together for Christmas with one or two different ha- households together. And then they cut that back down saying, don't do it. Uh, basically stay home for Christmas because they had 10 days of data suggesting that this virus is spreading super rapidly. And so that for every, it's like an R not four or something. So anyways, that's, that's happening at the same time we're seeing crude like go up. So to your point, this is, there's a tale of two stories here. And I think that the vaccine stories that we did see, I mean, it's been over two weeks now that the first vaccines were being implemented, the Pfizer um, and BioNTech vaccine in the UK. And we started that last week in the US. And then we're already going to roll out this Moderna one as well, it looks like very soon. And that one, it looks like it's much better in rural communities as well, because you don't have to have the cold storage. So I think the market for sure is pricing that, like the actual stock market's pricing that in. But oil tends to, if you look over the cross the year, 
oil tends to not necessarily follow the stock market. So oil prices were subdued, even though the market's ratcheting up. So oil tells you a different story. It told you throughout the course of the year how badly the economy was hurt and how bad the shut-ins and everything were and how bad just like the oil sector was. And so now to me, it's telling me how it's recovering a bit and it's largely recovering because of those um, supply constraints that OPEC Plus put in. And that's really coming from, I mean, if you actually look at the numbers from Saudi Arabia, I think we should think back to 2018, November 2018, remember when prices started cratering in, in December, and it was because we were producing 11 million barrels per day in the US, 11 million barrels per day in Saudi Arabia, and over 11 million barrels per day in Russia. And now we're producing shy of, I mean, we're still producing under 9 million barrels per day in Saudi Arabia, and roughly 10 and change um, in Russia. So, I mean, it's a big drop. And then we've seen some countries eke out a little bit more production. But really, this Libyan story, and you mentioned Iran, I mean, Iran is planning on bringing these barrels back. And actually, there's a couple of stories, both that I've heard um, internally and, and externally from, that's been validated by the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, that Iran is already eking barrels back onto the market. So their exports are probably a little higher than they're suggesting, which means the, the market is absorbing that as well. And those barrels are probably going to China and Syria and, and, and North Korea. But I mean, the fact that that's happening is relatively impressive. And I think I mean, my clients and folks know that I am not a long-term bull on oil prices, but I tend to be more near-term optimistic than most because I think that the fundamentals suggest that 50 is sort of the magic number and we are, we're darn near hitting 50. And I think what's really, really important for people to appreciate and realize is how important that $50 number is. Like, honestly, the Russians probably are getting a little bit nervous that Brent is over 50 is over 50 bucks because when we start getting above 50, we start getting to this territory where folks within OPEC want to cheat. I mean, we saw the issues with Kazakhstan and the UAE at the last OPEC meeting and they want to increase production. And actually over the past month or so, they have eked out a little bit more production. And then interesting last night, if you uh, had listening to Bloomberg on a Saturday, uh, they were talking about the OPEC plus compliance and how the, actually these monthly meetings and I if you've listened to it, there's a lot of criticism on whether or not this is a good thing, that they're meeting monthly and then they're changing their targets. And they're arguing that this is actually really good because they can sort of micromanage the market and basically do this every month. And honestly, if you think back from a historical perspective, it is this is super historical. It's, it's definitely unprecedented, the fact that they have sort of a long-term broad engagement for the next two years and that they're going to be managing the market on a monthly basis. I mean, you and I do this. We work week to week. The market changes wildly within a day or two. So it makes sense to me that OPEC would be coming and trying to do this. And again, when we say OPEC, we're really talking about Russia and Saudi Arabia coming together and managing this on a monthly basis so they can get ahead of this. And I think that does bode well for for 50-ish plus oil prices. So what do you think is going to happen in U.S. shale, and what do you think that the the powers that be are missing about elasticity of U.S. supply? I, I think that this this fifty dollar mark is this it's it's been this magic number for shale that everybody's talked about, and we've talked about it. I mean, it, it it's sort of the the magic number that everything break evens at fifty. But we've seen the rig count. I mean, right now the Permian Basin is at, you know, according to Enervis, it's 185 rigs in the Permian Basin. That's we've ratcheted up that rig count every week, basically since July, um, at a bottom of 127 rigs. And we've had 40-ish dollar WTI from June onward, and it's it slipped back at times, but the rig count has continued to move higher. And actually, if you look at productivity, 
surprisingly, it's not, we, one would expect productivity to actually decline in 2020. I mean, we shut in these wells, so, and any new wells we're bringing on, I wouldn't expect them to be, you know, going gangbusters. But honestly, it's held up well. So if you're looking, if you normalize for lateral length and you're looking at cumulative production, or you're looking at just the IPs, they're holding in line with 2019 numbers. So that's pretty impressive. That's like Wilson Basin and Fermi Basin, if you look at both of them, just on the face of it. So I think that the skeptics are missing how well, what happened basically in 2014, how well the industry, how resilient the industry is and how well it responded. And particularly the life of the rocks. I think the longevity of what these rocks have to give you and the, the analytical framework we often think about is just like, okay, well, the rocks are tapped out or we hit this tier one acreage. And it's not, it's, it's simple technologies. It's doing things faster. It's, you know, making in those efficiency gains um, and it's doing things better at a, at a lower cost threshold. And so I think the market is, um, I mean, the market also may be anticipating that we're not going to have as much production. IEA actually shows in their outlook that production's at 11 million barrels per day next year. And so they're not really expecting any kind of resurgence. I think the ability from a technical capacity, and you and I have talked about this offline, the ability for the U.S. to actually get back to 13 million barrels per day technically is very feasible. But it's um, the question of whether or not the administration is going to really harp on you know, production is, I think that's, it's looking incredible cabinet picks that happened this week and all the talk on on climate change being an existential threat. And I think production is going to be something they go after, which means OPEC has a lot of running room and, and they can do a lot. But I also think that the the skeptics are probably not seeing the what's going to happen to Texas. I really think Texas, if you're if you look at the Eagleford recount, that the recount has come up a little bit as well. We've seen production really come off and has hasn't really recovered. It's about a million barrels per day in Eagleford, and there's a lot of running room. I think in terms of just like a rock perspective and productivity gains and what these operators can do, and the fact that Texas is all private, I think we're going to see a monster base and, and all these other places as well. On the gas side, we see the Arklatex being the biggest beneficiary of the decline in associated gas production, particularly the Haynesville. The Haynesville is pretty much ideally positioned to take care of LNG. The Northeast, surprisingly, and in particular, if MVP doesn't get done, um, could be gas constrained uh, in a few years. And uh, the Haynesville looks looks like it's going to attract uh, most of the gas directed capital a little bit in the Haynesville and and the Marcel's but can we talk about on the your perspective on the Permian side because if if you pull up Permian production now you realize that it was based barrels per day in March and um and gas production was like 17 BCF a day and gas production came down but has really recovered pretty well so what's your you know personal perspective as well as maybe East Daily and how you're thinking about the midstream piece because if you're just looking at water crude and and gas within the permian basin crude hasn't come back yet water's still down but gas is coming back and that's probably because you have you know associate you know the associated gas is coming up on some of these older wells but can you just talk, walk us through that a little bit and really are we you know if the permian wants to go gangbusters next year do we got to start worrying about gas capacity again well you're in luck because i'm going to show you a slide from our report, which just went out this week, Dirty Little Secrets, a shameless plug for East Daily's annual report. And this is our view of associated gas production in key oil basins. And this is based on the strip as of about a week ago. So you can see we don't see that bouncing back. Obviously this will change quite a bit if, um, if we see say $60 oil prices. Um, but we think 
for the most part, associated gas is going to make a modest rebound into 21. And then, you know, with the exception of growth in the Permian, where we actually see gas processing infrastructure, um, you know, looks utilization looks pretty good in two to three years. Um, you know, the the other oil basins aren't going to aren't going to show enough growth to uh, supply that giant wedge of associated gas that was suppressing natural gas prices up until this year. We're still looking, you know, we've seen a little bit of winter weather weakness on gas prices lately, but we still are very constructive on gas prices into 2021. Um, and what's what's interesting is some of the side phenomena that are occurring. For example, um, gas capture in the Bakken is very high right now uh, as flaring has subsided uh, because of the associated gas, the excess capacity is being taken up by gas plants. And we actually think uh, gas capture by GNP is going to peak uh, in 4Q, excuse me, exceed the first quarter, which is kind of interesting. And One Oak is actually going to, we think, post record company GNP volumes in the fourth quarter based on capturing gas and expanded capacity utilization there. Okay. But so you would say then over with that chart that you showed and the fact that we know that Permian Basin gas has come back up to nearly almost 17 BCF at 16.8. So it's recovered. So you were suggesting that associated gas has come off considerably just because that oil is not going to come back nearly as quickly. Yes. And, okay. you and know, I mean, this, let's one gating factor. So I, I, I want to I want to point out, yes, there are pretty substantial um, changes that can happen. And there's basically no reliable confidence interval on oil prices in the next six months. If you put an 80 or 90% bracket around it, you're talking 15 or $20 a barrel in either direction. But what's different this time is that you've got forces keeping public companies in check. So they won't be able to accelerate drilling as much or as fast as they have been because of the pressure on bank lines. So the promises for free cash flow from ENPs, uh, investors are going to hold them more to that line of business strategy than they did when it was all about NAV growth and flip. They have to stand on their own feet, so to speak. And the same is true largely for midstream. Uh, you know, they're a follower, not a leader. You know, we think probably close to $200 billion in free cash flow through 2024 on midstream on a lack of CapEx which is an enormous shift from a free cash flow deficit of 15 to $20 billion look back. So despite the, the lack of production, in a, in a certain sense, the fundamental health of the companies, both in upstream and midstream that have survived to this point ought to be better and they ought to be able to keep some margin in place because the amount of capital being steered isn't as limitless as it was before. We still think that's going to be significant capital access, but nothing like the piles of money being thrown into the, the sector from, say, 2010 to, to 2014 in particular and, and through 18, if you will. Okay, I, I disagree a, a little bit um, with that in that I think that I think that the tenden the the things that people don't appreciate are often that at how well, how easily adaptable companies are, um, how the private companies do go back to work. And I think all you have to do is look at the, the number of operators that were drilling. And I mean, you had 
you had 39 operators drilling in the Permian in July, and you have over 70 operators drilling now. And so the sheer volume in just the number of operators, when we think about, and again, this is the Permian, and we've, we've talked about this before offline, and that it's, you know, if you're looking at the Permian versus other places, it's different. But the amount of private companies and the amount of private equity companies in that space, it's way more than if you listen to any analyst on TV talking about the oil market, they would have told you that anybody drilling with one rig, these private equity backed companies, they would have been done in April. And they're not done. They've actually come back. Some of them have actually drilled through it. And that's the... Like that's the piece where you asked about like what are people missing? I think that's what they're kind of missing. And they're also missing is that that amount of private money that people are getting, there there is some access to that private capital. There's still access to some private equity. And then that cash flow from operations. Like when oil prices are fifty dollars a barrel, many companies are making money. They they're that free cash flow is generating the ability for them to make money. And they well, also I think you're I think you're vehemently arguing with me. Uh, in, in the same, we're saying the same thing in different ways. I absolutely believe that the capital. Yeah, we are. We are. The capital. Wait, wait, let me finish. The capital is going to coalesce in the Permian, but we're not going to have the flood of tier two, tier three oil basin uh, excess capital and activity that we had before. So the difference is, we are really focused on economics and the places where it makes sense to do that. And the Permian's going to take the lion's share of well-directed capital. Yes, there's a lot to finance that, but I don't think there's a lot of excess capital that's going to finance tier two and tier three drilling economics. No, I don't think it's going to go to places that it worse drilling economics. But I do think that depending upon the regulatory environment and you know, North, I personally, I think North Dakota could really thrive because the, the Wilson Basin just has excellent rock. But I mean, if we have problems with Dakota Access or Enbridge Line 5 or Keystone XL getting developed, which very well may happen under this administration, then nobody hurt. If prices were to go to $60 a barrel, you're sort of, there's no worries because it's just going to go on rail. And even $55 a barrel, if you could make your economics work in the Bakken with 45 and you're railing for 10, I mean, we may see some stuff. I just think that the unique pressures this year with if prices are at 50 and you have this unique regulatory environment, which is pressuring, you're going to see everything where there's private land, you're going to see this honed in focus. And sometimes, even if the economics aren't perfect, you may see an acceleration that moves there. And we also, th I also think that that the way that that capital discipline and the ability for people to think about the rock differently and to perform differently. I mean, EOG is telling the market we can grow production at eight to 10 percent at 50 dollar oil. And they're also saying, hey, we're not going to grow production in if the market's not balanced. I mean, so OPEC's going to have to say, hey, EOG, the market's not perfectly balanced. So please don't increase your output. I mean, and that's just not going to happen. I mean, because they can make money at 50 and they're going to. And the rig count suggests that's what they're doing. Well, and you're, you're, well, you're right. Well, and not everybody's right, going to be on. able Hold on, hold on. So if the entire industry was EOG, I would be wrong, but it's not. You know that. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's absolutely not. But I think that and from, a capital, from a capital standpoint and from the fiscal, like, I mean, from the ability to spend money, the ability to generate free cash flow and the ability to be economically sufficient, self-sufficient, 
the industry is not there. But in terms of like what the operators can do with the tools that they have, you always have this time when you're getting back to work where you still have cost compression on the server side. We're not going to see, you know, service costs balloon overnight. We saw them. We've actually seen them come back a little bit. Um, prices come elevated, but you're not going to see them go crazy because we don't have any of that fractures running. So folks that are entering now or, or the private companies that have been doing this or, or the, the tap rocks or whoever they are that are still drilling in New Mexico, those guys are going to be, um, I mean, they're going to continue to drill through this and they're going to do it probably a little more aggressively and a little better than people think. So back in the day when Continental Resources was telling everyone, hey, we're the only ones doing this and we're doing great. Same thing as Aubrey McClendon when he was saying, hey, we're the only ones that can produce gas as well. And then everybody produced gas as well. I just think we have to be really careful about saying to the, you know, that the industry is all is going to, you know, level off and they're going to be no more, you know, people aren't going to perform in line with DOG and they probably won't, but there are a lot of companies that are probably going to crush it next year in the Permian Basin and maybe elsewhere right, as well. We need to figure out a way to operationalize our disagreement on this super petro nerdy uh, topic uh, in a way that uh, maybe one of us will have, the loser has to send a bottle of wine to Chuck Yates or something like that. And uh, so let's talk about the appointments. Uh, the Biden cabinet not what a Wyomingite like yourself would like. Um, so the most interesting, I think, is his, his pick for Secretary of Interior, Deb Holland. I'm not sure I'm saying her name right. Um, apologies if I am not. She is uh, a progressive from New Mexico who uh, appears to not be a big fan of oil and gas. And Wyoming had a study this week that basically calculated something around $700 billion and destroyed total economic value from a, a leasing or a drilling moratorium on, uh, on federal lands. How do you think this is going to play out, Tricia? I, it's, it's a great question. I think that we're, this world is going to look a lot different. I mean, 2021 with this new administration is just going to look a lot different. And this, uh, I, actually, there were some comments actually in the last few days with regards to climate change and the czars that, uh, and I don't think I'm, I'm being too aggressive in saying that the czars that Biden's putting in place, but basically calling climate change an existential threat. So I think it's really clear that climate change and energy production is going to be a focus of this administration. And that pick on on interior, I mean, she's from New Mexico and she's, I think in that, there was a Washington Post article and a couple other articles where she said directly, you know, I care about all these jobs and she's from there. But it's um, caring about the jobs and and also being an advocate on on what you're advocating for. It. I don't think it's it's we're going to be protecting those New Mexico oil and gas jobs. Uh, it looks much more like this is tilting in favor of um, these folks that are advocates on the climate change side. And it's just not there's no favor to oil and gas because it's 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 out of favor for a number of different reasons. So I think that the the severance taxes from New Mexico, Wyoming, um, the risk is like, is it Gulf of Mexico as well? And how quickly it goes down the pipeline, right? There is a little bit of time. I don't think this stuff happens overnight. And Biden can't, isn't going to do an, ex I doubt he'll, he's going to do an executive order. So it is going to come from these like, you know, recommendations by these cabinets. I'm sure they'll be doing studies. I'm sure some of those studies are going to be what impacts the actual drilling and completion of these wells going forward. So if you're an operator, you should be drilling and completing these wells as fast as humanly possible right now because you have concern that stuff is going to come down the pipeline. And I think the um, 
I think the industry just has to be really honest with itself on, you know, especially these comments we've heard from from Sharif Suki and from Bill Thomas and these folks about how easy it's going to be able to work with the Biden administration. I mean, these picks within the cabinet are not the same people you were dealing with under an Obama administration. Right. It was it was very different. And Obama made it clear how he entered. I mean, he entered the uh, Keystone debate by jumping on a radio show in, in Nebraska and sort of getting involved there. But I mean, he didn't actually get too involved in domestic oil and gas production. And in fact, he sort of allowed, you know, to flourish and allowed exports to sort of go up for, for liquefied natural gas. And this, I mean, there's serious, serious ramifications, I think, from a like energy security geopolitical framework of just in a year from now, in a year from now, if we do indeed, as the IEA points out, if production is just 11 million barrels per day, I mean, a year from now, and we're importing that crude oil. I mean, that's a million barrels per day that we're getting from other countries. I mean, and if we don't actually get any of these pipelines fixed, you know, if line five, you know, you should comment on that, Ethan, on what's going to happen in the Midwest with the actual existing pipelines that are moving both Bakken crude and, and Canadian crude oil. I mean, if those are threatened, we're actually changing how we're moving domestic crude oil production now. And so that that production could be further threatened, which means we're then importing those barrels. So not only that the the Biden administration will be working on domestic climate change issues to impact, you know, oil and gas production. And in turn, I mean, to be fair, there are I think they're going going to go after methane, uh, methane leaks and, and methane. So I think from a flaring like capturing the flaring and everything that you commented there is is big, but it's really going to be about methane emissions. And the fact that France thinks that we have some of the dirtiest gas um, in the world and they don't want to import our liquefied natural gas is one of the things like, so I think the industry, and I, I told an, a, a reporter this week from Brink um, interviewed me on this and asked about methane emissions. And I said, this is, gonna, this is already a focus of the industry. I think the industry is going to work really aggressively to measure it and to lower those emissions. But I believe now that we are on, it's, it's standardized. So basically it's not the actual emissions. It's the, it's the standard number that basically they set on U.S. emissions. And then that's what the shale industry looks like. So I think the industry has an ability to sort of innovate their way out of that. But the question is whether or not, you know, it's going to look like sort of this Polis administration in Colorado, where you're not going to, you can evaluate permits, but it may take 10 months to evaluate permits and you may never actually get one. If that's what's going to happen under the Biden administration, I mean, yeah, you, you're, the reality is you're going to see development of oil and gas get severely curtailed in all these states with federal land exposure. And that is going to have a direct impact on the, the jobs and the welfare of those states and really going to have an impact on the money that they're bringing in. I mean, that's it, it's considerable. I mean, it's, it's not a, a small little dent and it's going to have an impact on this, those states' economies. I think that is probably a good place for us to wrap this up. Um, on a more positive note, the market will be closed at 1 p.m. Eastern on the 24th for Christmas Eve and closed on the 25th. So I'm not sure when this is going to air, but uh, we will see you after Christmas. With that, I'm Ethan Bellamy from East Daily. I am Trisha Curtis from Petronards, and we are your hosts. And we'll be back soon, apparently, after for the next Petronards podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Trisha. Bye.